Iran cracks down on ethnic Baluchis marking the first anniversary of mass killings by security forces, but appears to hold back from using deadly force. A Baluch rights activist tells us why this time was different. I think what they did the first time was that they did not believe that anyone would take an interest in this, and they didn't believe that they would be punished for it. Plus, we find out why Iran appears to be trying to silence the lawyer representing the family of women's rights icon Masa Amini. And Iran uses a Qasad rocket to put a satellite into orbit. We ask a U.S. researcher how that helps Iran's development of ballistic missiles. The better the Qasad rocket gets, the better the IRGC space program gets, the more likely you see the regime reaching for an ICBM capability. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Iran. Good morning, I'm Michael Lippin in Washington. Rights groups say Iran's minority ethnic Baluchis took to the streets in relatively large numbers last Friday after weekly prayers to mark one year since mass killings of Baluchi protesters by Iranian security forces. The mass killings happened in Zahedan, capital of Iran's impoverished southeastern province of Sistan and Baluchistan, on September 30, 2022. The UN Special Rapporteur on the Situation of Human Rights in Iran, Javed Rehman, has cited Baluch rights groups as saying at least 93 people were killed in Zahedan that day. The Europe-based Balochistan Human Rights Group tells VOA that Iranian security forces responded to street protests marking the anniversary by firing rubber bullets and wounding 29 people, eight of them under age 18. It says 120 people also were detained, 39 of them children. VOA cannot independently verify those figures as it is denied access to Iran. Munira Shirani is a spokesperson for the group. I asked her in a Monday phone call why so many young Baluchis participated in the anniversary protests. Michael, I think we have to remember that this isn't a new protest. The people in Baluchistan have been protesting for a year now. These young people have nothing to lose. They live in a society with no job expectations, extreme lack of respect for them as humans. Uh, there's no equality. They're not equal in the eyes of law. So the process of, <laughs> of losing, they have nothing else to lose. You know, this is just grasping on the last straw of hope. And there's also, I mean, their uncles are also part of the protest, their fathers, their grandfathers, their mothers. Oh, this is a societal uh, movement that we have seen for the last year. And I think that last year on the 30th of September, that Friday, which started as a protest against the sexual assault on a young girl, on a teenager, by a police at a police station. So there was actually first protest in the city of Chalbahar. At that city, because it's a port city, the military has a higher presence. So that protest was shut down, but people kept wanting to shed light on this and demand accountability. And I mean, I've been working with human rights violation. I've had reports coming in throughout the years. Uh, I've worked with this issue for over 10 years, but I was shocked to the immense violence that the regime had put in. Well, just on the subject of the violence, uh, it was a very bloody day, of course, one year ago. And this time there were more protests. There was another crackdown. 
But as you were saying, you have reports of people being wounded, but it doesn't seem like it was on the same scale of killings a year ago. So why do you think the government response was not very deadly this time? I think what they did the first time was that they did not believe that anyone would take an interest in this, and they didn't believe that they would be punished for it. They thought that they could crush the resistance in Baluchistan with one blow. And I honestly think that what the IRCG, the besiege, and the military did that day a year ago was a mere reflection of, of the policy that Iran has had towards Baluchistan. I mean, we are 2% of the population, but we represent 80% of the execution rates. Um, there's basically, you know, a militarization of, of the region that's been going on for the last 20 years. The region is important due to its connection to the sea and the connection to the rest of the continent. So economic deals going through India, going through China, they have to go through Baluchistan. To the Gulf countries, you have Chabahar, the ports. So trying to control Baluchistan is economically very important for the central government. But I think that they, they don't understand that young people have social media, young people have an access to the rest of the world, uh, which they cannot control, even though they try to extreme extents. And people have for weeks prepared for the last Friday's demonstration. We saw much more people than we have seen throughout the Fridays this year. Do you have any sense of the numbers uh, who turned out on Friday? Unfortunately, no, I don't know exactly, but there were much more than what we had seen this year. And also there was a general strike in Baluchistan. So people had prepared that on Saturday, uh, the shops would be closed, people would stay indoors just to commemorate the people that were killed last year. So there were plans for demonstrations. There was a general strike that was going to be kept and was actually kept in Baluchistan. So Chabahar has one of the biggest commercial districts and the shops were completely closed. Um, so, I mean, there is a willingness to be part of this revolution that we haven't seen for, for ages. And uh, it's also the fact that uh, they're actually echoing what's been happening in Iran for so many years. But as I said before, they have nothing to lose. They've lost everything. Can you give our listeners a sense of how you and your other members of the Baluchistan Human Rights Group are able to verify the information that you've been sharing about the numbers of people who were just wounded, detained, how you get their names, uh, how you know what happened to them? So, uh, and I think I need to highlight this as well before I get into uh, your question and that these last several months, those of us that have been active outside of Iran, we've also uh, had family members that have been threatened, arrested, and uh, under um, the regime's careful eye. Including yourself? Uh, yes. And many of us try to limit the contact with our near and dear because we know the consequences. But I have a colleague whose parents have been taken into custody for interrogation. Um, I have another colleague whose brother... Uh, has lost his license. So there's a lot of pressure on us too. So there's scare tactics that they're using. It's not only on people inside, but they try to get to us because we have an access to the rest of the world, which we thought or we have been able to more or less 
freely engage with international community. But to be honest with you, a lot of us are scared for those that live inside. And uh, we do have to make a very um, a tough choice when you get involved in human rights uh, issues. And we have people on the ground that verify. Uh, people are share information much more. It is easier to verify because we're trying to have our contacts. So you have a network of people inside the region who are able to share information with you on a regular basis? Absolutely. I mean, we do write a lot of reports to the United Nations, and those reports have to be uh, fairly vetted. Uh, so sometimes we have more information, but because we haven't been able to vet that information, we're not able to uh, pass on that uh, information about that person. And also, we are very careful when we go out with names and dates because we want to have the parents or the family members consent before we do that. And I said, we have reports of 200, but we think there are many more people that are arrested, but the people are scared. Um, they have been threatened. So they try not to reach out as much as before. Monira Sharani, spokesperson for the Balochistan Human Rights Group, joining us on the line from Stockholm, Sweden. Thank you very much for speaking to Flashpoint Iran. Thank you so much for having me. Iranian human rights lawyer Saleh Nikbacht appeared in a Tehran Revolutionary Court on Monday for the second and final session of his trial on charges of spreading anti-government propaganda. Nikbacht's own lawyer told Iranian state media that the session lasted one hour. Iran's intelligence ministry took Nikbach to court for speaking to overseas media about his work with the family of Masa Amini and other clients. Amini was a 22-year-old Iranian Kurdish woman whose death while in custody of Iran's morality police last year triggered months of nationwide anti-government protests. Nikbacht has been helping her family to press Iranian authorities to reveal her cause of death. My colleague Siamak Deganpour of VOA's Persian service has been following Nikbach's situation. I asked him by phone Tuesday what he knows about the trial's outcome. Thanks for having me, Michael. Uh, we know that Mr. Nikbach and his lawyer rejected all the charges and argued for the charges to be valid. Mr. Nikbach had to do the interviews constantly and what he said was not against the entirety of the government. He just criticized some authorities on lawful conduct and questioned the way the country is being managed. Apparently, Judge Amuzad, known for handling political cases, had already decided, but they have to wait for the court's decision to be announced. If convicted, he faces a prison term of one, two, three years. The case focuses on nine items from his interviews from the past four years. My understanding is that after his interviews about the Massa, I mean, his case, the intelligence ministry wanted to silence him. So they went as far back as four years to find something to justify their argument. He did speak to you for the VOA Persian service uh, earlier this year. It was in February. So was there any specific mention of this lawyer's VOA Persian interview in terms of the charges against him? As you mentioned, my interview was conducted in February 2023, about five months after the death of Massa. The focus of my interview was uh, why the case was not moving forward. So one month after that interview on March 6th of 2023, Mr. Nikbach received a subpoena. Just one month after that interview I conducted. 
But it took them six months to have the first hearing for Mr. Nick Baft, as you know, on August 29th. In that interview, Mr. Nick Baft repeatedly questioned the validity of uh, legal medicine's argument about the death of Massa Amini in the custody of the police. He requested a group of 12 independent, qualified, well-known medical professionals to participate in the investigations, but the government never responded to his request. Many specialists inside Iran also rejected the conclusion of legal medicine. Dr. Nick Baft's central argument is this. Mahsa was safe and sound. In less than two hours, she was moved to a hospital and lost 95% of her vital signs. So during the trial yesterday, Mr. Nikbeth said the same thing, giving his opinion about why legal medicine's conclusion is just an opinion and that could change. So Nikbeth has an interesting point. Uh, legal medicine in his conclusion has said that the cause of death has not been an external factor, but they have not concluded what has been the actual cause of death. And that's what Nikbeth wants to find out. And probably that's why the government wants him out of the picture. But what I'm curious to know is if any of the charges against this lawyer actually cite specific media interviews that he did, for example, VOA Persian or any other overseas news outlets. I'm not aware of that because the details of the court has not been discussed in the public. So obviously, as I mentioned, there were multiple interviews he has given discussing that. Mr. Nipath himself yesterday talked about this. And the focus of the intelligence minister's representative was why he has weakened and he's questioned uh, legal medicine's decision. And that was the focus and the heart of uh, my interview. We discussed this probably over 10, 15 minutes about the same argument. So it seems like there are two ways in which the government is trying to put Selenikbacht in some kind of legal jeopardy, partly because of what he's saying about the causes of Masa Amini's death, and partly because he's discussing that issue with overseas news outlets. So is it your sense that these are basically the two elements of the government's strategy to go after him for both issues? Yeah, and you know he's a veteran. As I mentioned, he has represented multiple people, unknown and well-known people, prisoners like filmmaker Jaffa Panahi and many former government officials. He's not new to these situations, but to understand Mr. Nikbert's case fully, we have to look at the larger picture of many other charges against human rights lawyers in Iran, which has been going on for decades. Mr. Nikbert was one of the lawyers who never gave an excuse to the government to tarnish his reputation. He didn't even call Mahsa's killing a murder, saying regardless of his opinion as a citizen, he needs definite evidence to call it a murder. So he's that kind of lawyer. Now the government doesn't even tolerate a peaceable and well-respected lawyer like him. So the government's trying to shut down any path available to lawyers to express their opinion. It's an absolute uh, police state. Have you heard anything about how Mr. Nickbox is doing these days and how he's coping with being on trial? And how can he continue his legal work under these circumstances? Yeah, I know he's been in the media for decades. He, he's, as I said, he's a very well-known lawyer. He's friendly toward media. He always responds to questions. But, I mean, recently he's been 
more under pressure, but to talk to many media, especially because of the heart of the case. But one thing I, I can say for sure, it's interesting is that the case, my sense is that uh, this is a very carefully crafted strategy coordinated between the intelligence ministry and the judiciary to bring this case against Mr. Nijbeh at this point. Because as I mentioned, the case twice was postponed. They wanted to extend it in a way that would cover the anniversary of Massa's killing, maybe to keep Mr. Nick Baft and the Amini's family quiet at that time. Asiyamak Deganpur, senior anchor and producer for VOA's Persian service. Always good to have you on Flashpoint Iran. Thank you for having me, Michael. You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Iran. I'm Michael Lippin. Data published online from the U.S. Space Force has confirmed that Iran successfully launched the third generation of its imaging satellite named Noor into low Earth orbit using a Qasid rocket on September 27th. The U.S. State Department described the launch as part of Iran's continued advancement of ballistic missile capabilities and said that poses a serious threat to regional and international security. Foundation for Defense of Democracies researcher Behnam Bentalablu has been following the Iranian space program closely. I spoke to him by phone and asked how much Iran advanced those capabilities with its latest rocket launch. Well, it's a great question and a very timely question because the Islamic Republic revealed actually with the Basid, with the, the satellite launch vehicle or the, or the rocket that tried to put the Noor into orbit back in 2020, that it had an active space program, not just run by the Iranian space agency, but it had an active space program run by the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps Aerospace Force, uh, basically proving the military ties and the military dimensions between space and, in fact, the military. And uh, the Qasid, when they had revealed it in 2020, they said that it was a three-stage rocket, so you know every stage has its own motor or engine depending on the fuel, and that they had used a pre-existing missile with liquid fuel for the basis there, but then they could swap that at any time for solid fuel. And why does this matter? It seems seemingly technical, but uh, is that if Iran is able to move towards a three-stage all-solid propellant space launch vehicle or a three-stage solid propellant rocket, it would be the clearest indication of what you had just said of the quote-unquote civilian space program not really being a civilian space program. So the ability to put the Noor satellite, which is the third time they tried to do it with the Assad rocket, is one thing. But the ability to actually have all of these stages of the engines and motors functioning, as well as to move towards potentially a three-stage satellite launch vehicle, means that they could be using this as the most likely pathway to a longer-range strike capability. So, to put differently, the better the, the Assad rocket gets, the better the IRGC space program gets the more likely you see the regime reaching for an ICBM capability. So when you look at this latest launch, it doesn't have yet uh, the three-stage system using all solid fuel, but when can we expect Iran to put out such a capability? How far away are we from that? Well, last year, last November, there was another rocket uh, revealed uh, by the Islamic Republic that we believe is called the Qa'in. Gaim 100. And they they are touting that that is their all solid fuel three stage 
SLB capability. We don't know if it uses exactly the same upper stage motors uh, and or engines as the Kassad, but moral of the story is that in military planning, redundancy is a good thing, not a bad thing. So if the Islamic Republic is working on multiple carriers, that may mean that there's multiple streams of effort to go towards a potential ICBM capability. And the reason the name of the other satellite launch vehicle, Kakaim, is worrisome is because the founder of Iran's missile program, uh, when he may have died in an accident or some believe was killed in some kind of targeted operation by a foreign intelligence organization, uh, when he died back in 2011, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the last program he was working on was a program called the Kakaim. And he had long believed, based on Iranian uh, Persian language reports, that the way for Iran to continue to move towards a long-range missile capability was by using a space program as a cover. So you've talked a bit about all the different signals and signs that Iran's space program has military dimensions. But can you explain for our listeners how the rocket uh, that Iran has been using to put these satellites into orbit in the last couple of years, how does that actually enable Iran to uh, potentially put uh, a nuclear warhead on a missile? Well, it's, it's a very good question. And while there are similarities between space and uh, ICBM programs, there's also some differences. For example, uh, if you're merely launching a satellite into low Earth orbit or medium Earth orbit or whatever, you're not too worried about the rocket coming back into Earth. You just want to kind of launch that up there. So uh, what we haven't seen yet is mastery of the return of that rocket or that carrier back into the atmosphere. And that would basically I mean, we need to see the Islamic Republic work on, you know, technologies that would shield a future warhead of a missile from the heat of re-entry back into the atmosphere. But really absent that, the staging of these rockets, the knowledge about how to generate the right amount of thrust, and the fact that it's essentially ballistic missile technology that is launching these rockets, whether they have military warheads or satellites impacted into the top of their nose cones, is essentially identical. Well, the U.S. and the Europeans are mindful of the threat of Iran's missile program, and they've said that uh, even though U.N. sanctions on Iran's missile program are expiring on October 18th, they are keeping their own unilateral sanctions in place. So when you consider that the Western world is going to keep its sanctions on Iran's missile program after the UN sanctions expire in two weeks, how much benefit will Iran really get from those UN sanctions being lifted? So there's good news and bad news, in my view, in the latest news. And the latest news being that the EU and the UK together are keeping the sanctions that they were, as you just mentioned, were mandated to lift under the JCPOA by October 18th, date called Transition Day. And in essence, this means about you know 200 to 300 of military and missile defense manufacturers will remain on European sanctions lists, which in my view is a good thing. But that is more akin to preventing an own goal than scoring a goal against the adversary. So it doesn't necessarily further stop Iran from making advances. It in fact keeps things the way they are, which is that you know if Iran tries to use Europe as a cutout to get some of these technologies, it would be subject to sanctions. The reason I'm still worried about the lapsing UN sanctions is, of course, Iran may be waiting to transfer you know, ballistic missiles to Russia after these UN prohibitions on transfers lapse, as well as the fact that 
from July 2015 when the JCPOA was agreed to all the way until December of last year, based on my account alone, there are at least 228 tests of ballistic missiles, including satellites, including military operations, including ballistic missiles and military drills. And really that number should have been zero if Iran was listening to the UN then. So my fear is that if the UN regulations drop, that number will increase significantly. To put it differently, it's like spinal tap turning it from 10 to 11. We shall see. Uh, Bainam Ben Talablu, senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, speaking to us from here in Washington, D.C. Thank you for coming back on to Flashpoint Iran. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week's show. You can find more episodes on Apple and Google Podcasts. I'm Michael Lippin. Join me again next week for another Flashpoint Iran. Flashpoint Iran.